Tonight's program focuses on the implications of global population decline. Dr. Daryl J. Bricker is the CEO of Ipsos Public Affairs. Ipsos Public Affairs has offices in 40 countries. It's the world's leading social and public opinion research firm. Prior to joining Ipsos, Dr. Bricker was the director of research in the office of Canada's prime minister. He's written seven national best-selling books, including Empty Planet, The Shock of Global Population Decline, with John Ibbotson. He holds a PhD in political science from Carleton University. Dr. Bricker writes early in his book that population decline is not a good thing or a bad thing, but that it's a big thing. So let's find out just how big as I turn the program over to Dr. Bricker. Just a reminder to our audience to please use the Q&A at the bottom of your screen to submit questions for tonight's speaker. Dr. Bricker. Thanks for having me on, Claire. I really appreciate the opportunity to, uh, to speak to everybody tonight. So what we're going to talk about tonight, as uh, Claire mentioned, is a book that I wrote with uh, a colleague of mine, actually a very uh, important journalist here in Canada named John Ibbotson. And uh, what the title of the book is, is Empty Planet, uh, The Shock of Global Population Decline, which seems to be a bit counterintuitive, uh, given most of what we hear about what's happening to the global population. Uh, but um, for some reason, this is not moving. There we go. Uh, but I like Mark Twain's quote on this. It ain't what you don't know that gets you into trouble. It's what you know for sure that just ain't so. And what we know, or we're supposed to know, is that uh, uh, we're going to experience a population dystopia. The population bomb, as Paul Ehrlich called it back in 1968, is going to explode. The UN tells us that the global population today, which is about 7.8 billion people, by 2100 will reach 11 billion people, or even possibly more. The reason for this is we're just having too many babies. We have unsustainable population growth, and it's going to destroy our planet, and the power of youth will dominate our future. As Mark Twain would say, it just ain't so. The global population is much more likely to peak mid-century and to decline by the end of century to about where it is today, if not lower. It's all in the numbers. What I'm going to speak to you about tonight uh, is uh, a, a science called demographics, which is really the, the study of people and, uh, and how population uh, changes um, and what's going on in the, in the population. So what I'm going to be showing you are, uh, are some numbers. I promise try not to make them boring and keep them really relevant, but you'll really understand why I've come to this conclusion in, in Empty Planet about where the population is headed, uh, and uh, you'll see what the scenarios look like. So why demographics? Well, ultimately, they're about people. And we're getting really good at measuring what's going on with people and populations. And everything that uh, we deal with in terms of demographics is not necessarily what's happening at this moment. But a lot of the effects that we're seeing today are really the product of decisions that people made previously. So the, 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 the decisions that your parents made and your grandparents made about the structure of the population. And ultimately, really, what it's about is the type of family that they wanted to have, the size of the family they wanted to have. As a result of the fact that these decisions were made previously, they're projectable, and the outcome from those decisions is projectable. They are facts. We can disagree about the speed and levels of some of these things are going to happen. You're going to hear me um, be somewhat critical of the UN's uh, uh, analysis of, uh, of population patterns and, and projections into the future. But even the UN, comes to the conclusion that at some point the world's population is going to start to decline. Uh, my argument uh, in the book is that uh, it's going to happen a lot faster. It's going to peak at a lower level, um, and, uh, and it's going to happen sooner than what the UN is suggesting. Demographics are like glaciers. I wanted to say wildfire. That's usually the way that we talk about these things, or like a, a tsunami. Um, and uh, it's going to change everything that's in front of it. But the thing that's really interesting about glaciers is as they move through the land, they also change everything under them and around them. Uh, when the glacier recedes, the world, the, the, uh, the earth that it's traveled over has changed forever. So where, while a wildfire can have you know, a temporary effect and, and, and maybe change things for, for a period of time, things tend to grow back as they were. That's not the same with glaciers. And demographics are like glaciers. They change everything. 
big demographic trends change everything, and they're very difficult to stop once they get started. The other thing is that you can see them coming from an awful long uh, distance away. Whether they're receding or they're coming towards you, you can you can spot it uh, from a fairly uh, long distance. And I think the trends that we're, we're going to be talking about tonight, or I'm going to be talking about tonight, are some of those glacier-like uh, uh, trends that you can see them coming. They're going to change everything forever, uh, and we're going to be living with them for a very long time. But every once in a while, something can happen like COVID-19, which is a wildfire, as I described it before. Um, and what happens when a wildfire meets a glacier? Well, in the short term, the wildfire disrupts and dominates. It's impossible to say what the lasting impact of COVID-19 will be. But the longer term, the glacier tends to triumph and it tends to roll on and continue to cause the changes uh, that started before, before it encountered the wildfire. It, uh, also, what tends to happen with the wildfires, it might even amplify the forces that were driving change previously. And I think that's, that's what we're seeing as a result of, uh, of COVID-19. And uh, what I would argue here also is that we should be aware of hot takes. Uh, there's a lot of conversation about how the world has changed forever as a result of COVID-19. Uh, it's, it's like that uh, old line when it, uh, with advertising. You know, I know 50% of the money I spend on advertising is wasted. I just don't know what 50%. It's the same thing with hot takes on COVID. Uh, you know, half of the comments about how the world has changed forever are probably right. I just don't know which half. So, for example, are people going to leave cities and go live in more remote communities? Are we going to be telecommuting a lot more than we used to, remote working, hybrid types of models? Maybe yes, maybe no. We don't really know at this point in time. Uh, there's some suggestions that that, in fact, may be the case, but we really don't know for sure yet. So uh, I would say beware of the immediate uh, takes on what uh, what's going to happen uh, as a result of COVID-19 and probably pay a bit more attention to what's going on with the glacier. The short term of COVID-19 on key demographics, what we've seen, uh, you know, the late night comics were joking about uh, how COVID-19 and being people in lockdown was going to lead to a baby boom. We've seen the exact opposite. In fact, we've seen a dramatic fertility collapse over the space of the last two years around the world. And I'll get into some of the details of that in a second. Uh, for countries that are reliant on uh, immigration to increase their population, countries like mine, countries like uh, the United States, we've seen a certain amount of disruption in immigration, uh, regular immigration at least, as people have find it much harder uh, to, uh, to make the trip uh, from the countries that they were previously coming from. Uh, um, the, the southern border is another issue in the United States uh, where you know people don't have to uh, necessarily get on an airplane to make that transition. But to, for countries like Australia, Canada, the United Kingdom, other places that are really relying on immigration for population growth, uh, they've all had their growth disrupted as a result of COVID. We've seen an excessive amount of death among the elderly. In fact, longevity took a step back in the United States as it did in most of the world over the space of the last two years as a result of COVID. Is, uh, are we gonna get back on the, the path of increasing human lives? My suspicion is that we probably will, but we just don't know. So there's been a bit of a short correction. And the, as I said before, the out-migration from major cities, people living, uh, leaving major downtowns, which is a, a base, basically a reversal of the pattern that was happening previously, is that going to continue uh, as we come out of, the, uh, out of the pandemic? We're not really sure yet, but it's definitely something to keep an eye on. So let me describe the population bust for you. These are the UN's projections about what the global population is going to look like between now and 2100. The big dark red line in the center is what they call their median variant. So if all of their estimations about uh, what the population is going to do in terms of uh, uh, fertility rates, mobility, amount of mobility that's taking place and mortality rates is as they predict, we're going to end up with a, a population of about 11 billion people. If the top blue line happens, you see it's plus 0.5. That means that we have half a kid more in terms of fertility on average around the world than the UN projected. Our population is going to spring above 16 billion people. If we have, though, just half a kid less than the UN is projecting, the population is going to end up approximately around where it is today and probably even lower. Uh, this estimate looks like about 7.2 billion people. So it's a pretty wide distribution that the UN has in terms of uh, the uh, 
the variance of population expansion that it it, uh, it sees going forward. But the one that it puts most of its emphasis on is that line in the middle that gets to 11 billion people. I'm going to argue in this uh, in this presentation that's just simply not going to happen. And the reason for that is because things are not happening equally everywhere. Uh, those two big blue circles that are staring at you from the charts, uh, from this chart, are the two largest countries in the world, India and China. They constitute 37% of the global population. Every other country in the world is distributed here in a little circle based on the size of the population that it has relative to the rest of the world. So the top 10 are countries like the United States, which, by the way, is number three, Nigeria, Indonesia, Russia. You can see some other countries that are displayed there. But the two big countries, China and India, if it's, if it's not happening there, it almost doesn't matter what's happening anywhere else. These are the top 10 countries in the world in terms of where they are relative to population today or in 2017 and where the most recent projections, and these ones come from the University of Washington um, and were uh, published in the Lancet magazine uh, in, um, in uh, I believe it was uh, August of this year. And if you take a look at the top list, when we go to 2100, China, which has a population of 1.4 billion people in 2017, is projected to lose almost half its entire population this century. India will become the world's most populous uh, uh, country, but even India is going to lose 290 people, 290 million people, sorry. Indonesia is going to lose 29 million people. The United States is going to probably pick up about 11 million people. But what we're going to see is big moves in terms of Africa uh, in ter relative to population growth, particularly countries like Nigeria. I would say that even these projections, based on what we're seeing of, of the data that are coming out today on uh, what's happening in the world in terms of fertility rates, are way overestimating what the size of the populations are going to be in these various countries. It's going to be even lower. The key demographic forces I'm going to, we're going to quickly talk about, and they're all interrelated. The first one is urbanization which has a major effect on fertility, and fertility has a major effect on population aging, because that's ultimately the consequence of all this. Not only are we going to have a smaller population, but we're going to also have a much older, less fertile population. So what's happening in terms of urbanization? The biggest migration in the world today is not people moving from one country to another country. It's people moving from the countryside to the city. Back in 1960, about a third of the globe's population lived in a city. Today, it's 57%. The UN tells us that by 2050, it'll be 68%. And this is happening everywhere. Africa, Asia, Europe, happening less in places like North America because we already were a pretty urbanized um, a population along with the European population, but the developing world is, is urbanizing incredibly fast. And that has a major impact on fertility rates because when you move from the country to the city, your economic calculation about children in your lives changes. On the farm, they're extra hands. In the city, they're more of an expense. So you tend to have smaller families, but that's not the only reason we'll get into some of the other reasons that, that, uh, that we're seeing declining fertility. But urbanization is a big, a big factor. And for the 10 most populous countries, take a look at China at the top. It's gone from 16% urban population in, in uh, 1960 to today, where those numbers have flipped. It's now 61%, a tremendous amount of change in a very short period of time. By 2050, the UN tells us uh, the, uh, uh, the population of China is going to be 80% urban. But if you take a look at all of these countries, including the developing countries, you're seeing a really rapid pace of urbanization. Japan, by the way, which loses, a which loses about half a million people a year from its population, by 2050 is going to be 95% urban. Today, it's 92%. Uh, they're now putting um, mannequins in bus stations in Japan. Uh, for the people who are left in rural communities so they don't feel lonely. You can look that up on, uh, on the internet. Go take a look. Because rural Japan is just about empty. 
So as I said before, the major effect is on fertility of urbanization. So the magic number to keep in mind is 2.1. That's the number of children a woman needs to have in her lifetime in order to offset the number of people who are going to be dying in a population. So you have to have that number 2.1 every year in your population on average in terms of fertility rate in order to just replace the number of people who are going to be dying. 2021, the United States registered its lowest fertility rate in a century at 1.6. And by the way, the United States has high levels of fertility compared to most of the developed world. So I'm going to spend a couple seconds on this because it really is the key to what we talked about an empty planet. So back in 1960, the average woman in the world had 5.2 children during her lifetime. Today, that number is 2.4. The UN tells us it's going to be 2.2 by 2050. The 2.3 number in red is the number that that Lancet study that I said came out in August um, has for global fertility, which is already lower than uh, what uh, the UN has in its projections that get us to 11 billion people. China, the fertility rate has gone from 5.8 to 1.6, the UN tells us today. The Lancet study tells us it's at 1.5. Yesterday, the government of China released its fertility rate for 2021, and it was at 1.16. So dramatically different from either the optimistic model that the, uh, the UN has or the more pessimistic model that even the Lancet had. India has gone from 5.9 to 2.3. The Lancet study says it's actually at 2.1. The Indian government in January, actually just a couple of weeks ago, released its most recent census. It already has fertility rates in India at 2.0. As I mentioned to you before, if those two countries representing 37% of the globe's population aren't having kids, it almost doesn't matter what's happening in other place. The U.S., the UN has at 1.9, Lancet had a 1.8. I just showed you what uh, the US Census Bureau has for the fertility rate for 2021, it's 1.6. I expect we're gonna see a very similar story in all of these other countries. By the way, Russia, just to give you a, an interesting uh, um, a population statistic, by the way, their fertility rate's nowhere near 1.6, it's probably down around 1.4. Uh, 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 President Putin has come out and said that the uh, uh, Russian population is shrinking by a million people. Are there the uh, number of deaths in Russia outnumbers the number of births now by over a million people every year? And you can see the uh, usually what's held up as the poster child for low fertility and declining population is Japan. It's at 1.3. China is now at 1.16. So that's why um, you know the conclusion that we're not going to get to 11 billion people uh, by the end of the century. Uh, you, you can make a you can make an estimation like that because the numbers are just not adding up. If you're not having people, you're not having kids being born in the world, then the likelihood that the population is going to grow really declines. And as I said before, um, it's it's happening everywhere. So why is fertility declining? Number one reason: urbanization. I explained it to you, but not only because of the economic reasons, but also because of the effect that it has on the lives of women. Uh, if there's anything uh, that is the message that comes out of the book, Empty Planet, it's about the empowerment of women. When women are able to take control over their reproduction, they decide that they want, they generally decide to have fewer children. So they move from the country to the city. They all of a sudden get exposed to education. And as a result, they take advantage of it. And that's why, for example, uh, uh, women are in, in, in most developed countries now represent the majority of, of uh university students in, in, uh, in uh, post-secondary education in many countries. Uh, and also when they decide that they want to uh, uh, avail themselves of education, what happens is they, they delay uh, the process of family formation. So if they're getting married at all, they're getting married in their late 20s. Well, if you take a look back to 1960 um, and take a look at maybe what their mothers or grandmothers were doing, those same women were getting married around the age of, of 21 or 22. Now they're getting married in their late 20s. 
And when they do start to have their family, they don't start their family at 21, 22. They started at 31, 32. And when they have kids, they don't have four or three and a half like they used to in the United States back in 1960. They're having 1.6. The other thing is we're no longer valuing large families the way that we used to. The, the real emphasis is on small families. Uh, just like in India, as they say, you know, uh, we two, our two. Uh, and and that's, that's what's happening in cultures all over the world. Uh, smaller families are, are being valued to a higher extent. Well, there's been a lot of success of government and NGO programs in terms of assisting women with the ability to control their reproduction. And as a result of that, what's happening is they are having fewer kids. And the gender and age structure of the population is changing. Uh, the world, as, as the uh, um, population declines and ages, is actually becoming more female. The United States, by the way, has more women than men and has for quite a long time. Many, many other countries, for example, Canada, uh, that's just been a fairly recent phenomenon, but they're becoming more female. But the population itself is just becoming older. And as it becomes older, it becomes less capable of being able to reproduce itself. And then, as I said before, COVID-19, the babies not born during COVID-19 are not going to be replaced. They're just going to be removed from the population. The estimate in the United States is about 300,000. And that was just in 2021. Aging. It may be a poet, as we say in the book, who observes that for the first time in history of our race, humanity feels old. So life expectancy is increasing everywhere. Back in 1960, the average human being lived to the age of 51. They now live to the age of 73. And by 2050, they'll live to the age of 77. In North America, we're living to the age of 81. In Europe to 79, even in Africa, people are now living to the age of 64. There's been a tremendous improvement in the in the uh, life expectancy of uh, of the human population, all you know universally. And you can see that in each of these countries. In China, it's gone from 45 to 77. India, it's gone from 43 to 70. But in every single country in the world, even in places where life expectancy was already relatively high, it's been going up. All good news, by the way. But what that also does is it increases the average age of the population. So this is the median age in each of these regions, Asia, Africa, Latin America, North America, Europe, and Oceania. The median age is the number in between. So half the population is higher than this or older than this, half the population is younger than this. So the, the median age in 2050 in Latin America is going to be 41. Today, it's 27. In Asia, it's 29, but it's going to be 40. In Europe, it's already 40, going to be 46. But let's take a look at the top 10 largest countries. The median age of China today is 39, older than the United States. Because we have this view that there's this huge young population in China. It's simply not true. The median age of in China today is 39. The United States is 38. Look at Russia, 40. Look at Japan, 48. And this is the problem Japan has. Even if they decided they wanted to have start having a lot more kids, they don't have the people in their population who are in their reproductive years to have more kids. So it's just a steady slide down. And that's the future for most of the world. And as I said before, the, as the population gets older, it also becomes more female. Here's the 20 reasons that the um, World Health Organization says that somebody can die prematurely. Uh, in the dark color are all the ones that are more likely if you're a man. In yellow are the ones that are more likely if you're a woman. So of the 20, 16 of them are more uh, prevalent among men. The four that are uh, specific to women are pretty much exclusive to women. The exception being Alzheimer's. And the reason that Alzheimer's is a bigger killer among women than it is among men is because uh, women just live longer. It's interesting. Every year in the global population, there are more boys born than girls. But by the age of 40, in places like the United States and Canada, um, in Western Europe, those numbers change. And every year after 40, there's more women than there are men in the population. By the time you get to the age of 100, and by the way, a lot of people are living to the age of 100 these days, the ratio is five to one. Now, male longevity is starting to increase, but not 
enough to actually catch up with women. So as the older the population gets, the more like the more female it is becoming. And as I said before, the United States is already more female. So this is what the global population is going to look like going forward. And if we were uh, being perfectly accurate here, we drop one of the men off the top uh, off the top level. And that's what we're facing. So the question is, how can this smaller number of young people pay for this larger number of old people? And there's going to be very big conversations about that going forward. So where to from here? We will grow fewer, which means that there's going to be a global population bust. We're going to reach somewhere between eight and nine billion. I don't know exactly what the number is going to be. Somewhere between 2050 and 2060, and then we're going to start the decline, and we will end the century with a population size like it is today or somewhat smaller. Now, these numbers could be off given the acceleration that we're seeing in terms of declining fertility. So, it could the peak could be lower. It could happen faster, and the decline could be more precipitous. As we say in the book, it's not good, it's not bad, but it's important. The growth in our population today in most countries is a product of population aging. In other words, people not dying as fast as they used to, but also from immigration. Without immigration, the United States and places like Canada, uh, their population would not be growing today at the rate that it's growing. We're going to see a dramatic shift in population structure. We're going to be older with diminishing fertility in smaller families. By the way, in both Canada and the United States today, the most common household is a person living by themselves at the start of their adult life and at the end of their adult life. I think we have to start paying a lot more attention to the power of older women. Why? They're very community engaged. There's a lot of them. They vote. And they're going to have a lot of economic and political power going forward. Somebody's going to figure that out at some point. The world is becoming metropolitan. The human species is becoming metropolitan. And the countryside is emptying out. We're going to see the decline of China. We're going to see the rise of India. And we're especially going to see the rise of Africa. The only part of the world that still has surplus population and still has much higher than average birth rates. But the truth is, even in places like Africa, fertility is declining. The question is just how fast. All of this, I think anybody who's uh, concerned about the environment and climate change, if you believe that the activity of human beings is what's causing all the problems with our climate, then fewer human beings is probably going to be seen as a good thing. It's probably going to be easier for our oceans. It's probably going to be easier for food production. It's going to be easier for a lot of things relative to the environment, but it's going to create big challenges for the, uh, the economy. Something that an economist at Stanford called the empty planet result. Uh, which is uh, that the population is going, the economy is going to have an incredibly hard time growing because the fastest and biggest growing and biggest part of our population is the least consumptive part, which is the elderly part. And we're going to have trouble with innovation because innovation tends to be a young person's game. We're going to experience two big decades of disruption coming up. The first one I call the Great Retirement, 2030. Every boomer is going to be 65 years of age or older, not just in the United States, around the world. Now, they're not all going to retire at the age of 65, but there's a very good chance that they're going to retire over the course of that decade. The next big decade will be the 2040s, which I call the Great Decline, which is when I anticipate actually that the population decline will begin because that's going to be the final decade in which boomers probably walk the earth. Some will live a bit longer but that's probably going to be uh, the, uh, the lion's share will, will uh, depart this mortal coil. And that's when the decline really, really starts to be, really starts to pick up. Once the decline starts, it's impossible to predict when, how, and at what, what, what level it will end. So the options, we can accept it and prepare for the inevitable. I think that'd be a pretty smart thing to think about. Some countries are looking at mechanization. So places like Japan, for example, have a, an obsession these days with robots in order to stand in for, um, uh, 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 for manual labor in particular. Or even, you know, they could be looking at companionship with robots and a whole bunch of other things. But mechanization is one way of being able to deal with this. The problem is robots don't buy anything. So you can produce as much as you want. 
But unless somebody's buying something, consumption that drives growth won't happen. So we can rethink retirement. And I think that there's going to be a very serious conversation about this over the space of the next decade in particular. What does retirement mean? And we're going to have to start looking at accessing some of our older workers in order to maintain our labor force. And finally, rethinking immigration, probably the most controversial thing that somebody can talk about relative to population growth. But if you're not having enough kids and you need people in order to keep your population growing, then you really need to rethink what you're, you're, uh, you're uh, dealing with in terms of immigration, because it's one of the only ways that you can keep your population growing. Uh, I do not underestimate, and I'm not naive, about the political difficulties that are associated with this. If you want to look at one of the biggest drivers of nativist populism around the world these days, it's immigration policy and cultural change that's created by it. So, um, yeah, a very difficult, controversial policy, but um, countries that can figure out how to make it work may be able to slow things down a bit. But the, the general trajectory is going to be in the direction that I've described here. So anyway, those are my comments. I want to thank you very much for your time. And I'd like to turn it back over to Claire. Thank you so much, Dr. Bricker. And, you know, fascinating topic. We have a number of questions and I'll just start with Kevin's. You've sort of addressed this, but you showed some projections for the United States actually showing our population increasing somewhat over the course of the, the next century. And he's questioning whether that is fertility or immigration or a combination of both. Higher fertility rates, younger population on average than many other developing countries, certainly younger than China uh, or, um, or I should say developed countries, certainly younger than China and definitely younger than Russia, but also immigration. Immigration and all the surveys that we do at Ipsos, when we look at the countries that people want to go to, America still is, regardless of all the things that are going on, is still seen as a, the most desirable place to relocate um, for, for people around the world. So um, yeah, immigration is, is definitely part of it. The United States has more immigrants in its population than any other population in the world. Clint wants to take a look at China for a moment because China had that one-child policy for a number of years. They increased it to two, and more recently, they've increased it to three. But as you mentioned, just in the last couple of days, some pretty startling um, statistics coming out on their fertility rate. Um, is this increase of allowing three children going to have any impact on their fertility rate? Well, increasing it to two didn't. Uh, and so that was four years ago that they did that. And there was a slight uptick in terms of fertility, but it's come back down now to, like I said, the historic low that they've registered in terms of the fertility rate. Remember, this is the Chinese government's numbers. So, you know, there are some critics that I've, I've read uh, who suggest that the numbers are even lower. Um, so they have a very dramatic population problem to deal with over the next, particularly the next 30 years. Um, as the economist said about China, uh, you know, and I think we quoted in the book, um, you know, China's problem is it's going to get old before it's rich enough to be old. And it makes it, in, in terms of geopolitics, potentially a very, a very volatile place. And it driven by population decisions that, uh, that people are making. Uh, and the problem is that once you get in this, what uh, one author calls a low fertility trap, and, and the, uh, the sociological norm for the size of a family is one or none or, or two, it's very difficult to talk people into having three. And in order for the population to grow, you have to have three kids on average. 2.1 is just enough to stay level. In order to keep the population growing, it has to be three. Because remember, the two is you, you and your partner replacing yourselves. Um, one for those kids who don't grow into adulthood, or just you know, that, that's what 2.1 is. And so you have to have three in order for it to grow. The United States hasn't had a fertility rate of three since the 1960s. Um, and China, China, you know, China was already in the twos when it decided to put in place the one-child policy. It made, it made no sense. But now they're now they're reaping the whirlwind of that. Since you mentioned that term, the low fertility trap, I'm wondering if you could just explain that a little bit more for our audience. Yeah, once it becomes a sociological norm in the country, that's the size of the family that you that you think is the, uh, the, the correct size of the family. It's very difficult to get people to change their fertility behaviors. In fact, it's not happened anywhere. So every there's no country in the world, 
not one, actually Israel for a period of time, uh, no country in the world has been able to get back above replacement level in the modern era once it's gone gone below it. And by the way, fertility is dropping in every single country. We're seeing a little bit of an uptick in places like the Netherlands and a couple of countries that have come out of the um, come out are starting to come out of the crisis in which uh, there is a little bit of pent up demand, but it's not going from 1.4 to 2.4. It's going from 1.4 to 1.5 or 1.6, which is just slowing down the trend. So, so that's, that's, the, that's, that's the trap. The so I'm going to go to Stephen's question, and now we're shifting our focus to, to Africa. And his he points out that four countries in the top 10 projected in 2100, Tanzania, Egypt, Ethiopia, and Congo, are not in the top 10 in 2017. So how confident are you in the demographic fertility trends in these African countries and in other African countries to support your thesis? Could high fertility rates in Africa dwarf the low fertility rates in the developed world? Uh, well, as you can see from the, the information from, uh, from um, uh, the Lancet study, uh, there's a suggestion. I think they come up with their, their estimate is like 9.8 billion. Well, that's still pretty far down from, uh, from 11 billion. Uh, but the thing about Africa, I will say, is that everything that's happened in Asia and everything that's happened in Latin America in the Caribbean is going to happen in Africa. And the reason is because, uh, you know, past is prologue. These trends started in Western Europe. They found their way into, uh, in, into, uh, into Asia and North America. They then found their way into Latin America, Middle East too, by the way, birth fertility rates. Iran's got, got you know, it's, I think it's fertility rate is 1.4. So this idea that, you know, Muslims are having tons and tons and tons of kids, no. It's just there's no place other than Africa that really is uh, having lots of kids and have, have high levels of fertility. But all of those places are coming down, too. And the, the one that we write about in the book is Kenya. Now, granted, Kenya is in East Africa, not West Africa. It's, it's not Nigeria. But Kenya is an African country, and it tends to be a bit of a leader economically and I would say culturally in, um, in, the, uh, in, in, in Africa. So uh, back in 1960, fertility rates in Kenya were eight. Uh, 20, uh, 10 years ago, they were four. They're now down below three. And in um, in Nairobi, which is the major city, and we talk about urbanization, it's down closer to two. So it, it's happening everywhere. And it's happening in Africa just a little less slowly. And, and the single biggest uh, factor in all of that is the speed of education of women. So if you want the best correlate for explaining what's going to happen in terms of a country's fertility, look at the level of, of the education rate among women. So in Kenya, for example, uh, uh, high school uh, uh, education participation for women and men is almost identical, which explains what, I'm, what, what we're seeing. In places like Nigeria, not so much the case, but it, at some point it will be. The question is just how fast. And when it happens, that's when the fertility rates decline. One of the themes of your book, and you've mentioned it in the program tonight, is the impact of urbanization. But I don't, I, I'm wondering if you could elaborate on what exactly you mean by urbanization. It's more than just moving to a large city, it's all these other social or cultural things that happen along with that. Would you elaborate on that? Yeah, it's, it's urban contingent. So when you live in the countryside, family ties are big. You have kids for your family. Religion tends to be more of a uh, an aspect of your life. You have, you know, the religious reasons to have, you know, kids. Um, it tends to be have a sort of a more conservative outlook at them. Uh, and, 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 you know, larger families are part of that sort of patriarchal way of looking at the world. Uh, when you move to the city, that gets, that gets challenged. I mean, your family, your, your, as they say in Africa, your, your aunties tell you to do something. But when you move to Nairobi and you're working in an office, it's not like your office mates are telling you to have kids. <laughs> I mean, what happens is the structure for women and the decision-making environment, the role models, the opportunities all change. And when they change and they become more empowered, one of the first things they do is say, I'm going to live a life different from my mother or my grandmother, which means it starts with economic independence driven by an education in a smaller family. And that's what's happening in places like Nairobi today. Um, and, uh, you know, we write about it extensively in the book. You can, you can read it. It's, it's actually a fascinating story about everything from 
bride prices and dowries to arrange marriages and how it all works. Because I, I went to Nairobi and I, and I talked to people. I mean, that's one of the cool things about the book. Well, I think it's cool, of course, when I wrote it, but with John. But, uh, you know, it, there's no charts or graphs in the book. I mean, there's one, I think there's one chart. Um, it's basically a bunch of stories in which we, we went around the world and talked to people and looked at what was happening in their lives and why the same thing was happening for different reasons in different places, but it was the same thing that was happening. But the, the common things were the theme of urbanization and the changing lives of women. One of the fascinating stories in your book was your focus groups with women in India who are living in, in slums in India. And many of them echoed those same sentiments that they, they wanted to have smaller families, a life different than their mom. But you mentioned something specific, and that was their access to smartphones. And we hosted a program two years ago that talked about this transformative effect of smartphones, which have only been in, you know, in India, let's say the last seven or eight years, they kind of skipped over having desktops and laptops and went right to phones, which were for many, their first camera, their first calculator. And it seems to have opened up like a whole new world. Yeah. And, and, you know, women who are desperate to have some independence from their, their, their husbands and from their husband's families, from their mother-in-laws. That, that was a, I mean, that was a fascinating day because I never intended to do focus groups in India. I, I all I did was I went to our office in Delhi uh, when I was there and said, and got in contact with some of our, the researchers in Ipsos the, uh, in public affairs and said, you know, uh, when you're going out and doing some interviews, I just kind of like to get a feel of the vibe. I mean, do, do you, I've never been to a slum. Can we go to a slum? And I just want to see how people are living. And I, I'm particularly interested in how, you know, women and and, uh, and uh, how women see their lives and what's going on. So, you know, I don't want you to do anything in particular, but I just kind of want to tag along. And so I showed up at the office in Delhi and they said, oh, guess what? We've scheduled two focus. I didn't ask them to do this. Scheduled two focus groups in, in this slum in Delhi. And so I walked with them. You know, we pulled up, we walked through the, you know, this warren. It was like it was a medieval town, you know, all these wires and things and laundry and, you know, you know, dwelling on top of dwelling on top of dwelling and these little paths, you know, cut through. And then we went into this little schoolroom and there was a bucket that was turned over, like one of those five gallon buckets. And that was my seat. And, you know, Tripti, who was doing the focus group who works for us in India, uh, she had uh, the first group was, uh, I think it was 10 older women who'd, uh, who'd already had kids and were already married. And so she just sat there and talked to them in, in, in Hindi, and then would turn back to me and say, blah, blah, blah. And I just, I was just taking notes. And then another group came in of women who weren't married and, and, uh, and they were talking about how they saw their lives. And, you know, she would talk and she'd turn around, and she'd tell me. And so the image that came up in the book that I think, you know, John Ibbotson says is the image of the book is I was watching and there, I saw this glow under this woman's sari. And it was like, what? the heck is that? And then all of a sudden she reached in and she grabbed the smartphone and she looked at it and she put it back. And I said, that's it. That's the genie out of the bottle. I mean, educate, I know education is the single best correlate to understanding uh, declining fertility and the empowerment of women or the empowerment of women primarily, and then declining fertility. I'm sitting in a slum in Delhi and this person has nothing. And she has a smart, she has a smartphone. It's over. So was I surprised when I saw fertility down to 2.0? Nope. Well, Anne has a question that brings up the topic of climate change. So do estimates on future fertility take into account unplanned decreases to fertility from increased average temperatures or increased pollutants in the environment? Well, actually, I'd, I'd pose the question the other way. Do the estimates about what's going to happen in climate change take into account declining population? And I can tell you they do not. So if you believe that human beings are the force that human activity is driving what's happening with climate change, then I think we need to redo our models a little bit because it ain't going to be 11 billion people. So if it's going to be more like eight or eight and a half, what does that do? And, you know, John and I, when we were writing the book, now this was a bit of time ago, um, a couple of years ago, but we looked 
a lot to find any studies that took declining population into account as a as a factor in um, in uh, in uh, determining uh, what was going to happen with the climate in the future. And there was one. So you know, I think this is a this is a topic that needs a lot of study, um, and I think we need to change the denominator in a lot of these models and start thinking about what the future is really going to look like. There might be some good news in that. I'd really like to see some scientists who understand climate, because I'm not pretending that I do, uh, uh, who, under, who understand climate to really take a look at that, because I think some of the data is changing in a significant way, and we really need to consider it. Uh, as far as a lot of things that have to do with climate change, they seem to be projected further out and seem to be less certain. Uh, um, and the thing about what's happening in terms of population change is it's very certain, and it's happening now. I mean, it's it's just happening now. And as I said to you, you know, 2030, 65 years of age or older, every single baby boomer, the largest generation in history, is there. You, you don't have to guess it. You don't have to. It's, it's going to happen. There's no way to stop it. Claude asks, would you please provide more insight into the economic implications of the de declining population? Right. So, um the, the problem for the economy is, you know, since the Industrial Revolution, but most importantly, since the end of the Second World War, economic growth has been driven mostly, almost exclusively, actually, by consumer growth and population growth. I mean, they, they, move, they move in lockstep. The problem that we've got now is that we're moving into a period in which uh, the population is not going to be growing at the speed that it did. And it, at, at some point, it's going to hit a point in which it's going to tip over and it's going to move into decline. But not only is that going to happen, so you can't drive economic growth with population growth. The second problem that's going to happen is the largest segment and most rapidly growing segment of that population is the oldest segment, which is the least consumptive. So they're not the ones buying cars to the same extent that younger people do. Uh, they're not the ones. Um, they're not the ones buying new homes. They're not furnishing new homes. Not doing all the things that they did when they were having their families. They were living their baby boomer lives, doing all of those things. So, if you're expecting that population growth is going to drive economic growth, it's we just won't have the people. And the people that will have the most of and growing, growing most significantly in that population are going to be among the least consumptive members of the population. Now, that doesn't mean that older people can't buy. My big critique on all of this, and I've written a fair amount about this, is, uh, you know, uh, advertisers, wake up. You know, uh, my, I, in this other book that I had, it's just on Canada, so you don't have to read, a, read about it, but I, I go into this whole thing about restaurants. You know, every restaurant that you go in these days seems to be structured for an overactive 15-year-old. Flashing lights, loud music, can't, tables are all tight. The menu's got stuff nobody recognizes. Um, you know, turn down the music so I can have a conversation because older people have a hard time with ambient noise. Maybe make some facility at the start of the place. So if somebody's got a mobility device they need to be able to get in and out with, they could get in and out with it. Um, uh, put some items on the menu that recognize that maybe there'll be people, like I said, who aren't interested in super hot, spicy, suicide, whatever's um, in uh, on your menu. And um, try to cater to an old because they have all the money. Nobody makes anything for them. I mean, when was the last time you saw an ad on television that didn't that featured, for example, an older woman that wasn't about a reverse mortgage or erectile dysfunction? I mean, they're they're they've got a, older women are a very very powerful segment in our population, and almost nobody makes anything for them. We don't make houses for them. We think that they're going to go live collectively in old folks' homes. No, they don't. They age in place. They stay in their family homes for the most part. So let's have a conversation about what an economy can be that recognizes the realities of the population instead of trying to replicate what happened during the madman generation because it's not happening again because those those that demographic does not exist to the same degree. That doesn't mean not to sell to younger people, but it means that if you really want the sweet spot, the people who have the money, you need to figure out a way to free them up of it. And that's older people. Make things for them. Feature them in advertising. When you build a car, make it possible for somebody to get into it who happens to maybe have a harder time sitting down. Or uh, maybe make the displays a bit bigger. Or maybe, you know, they probably have a spouse that they need to put a mobility device in the car for in order to get them around to do various things. One of my favorite topics is bike lanes. 
you know, cities have gone crazy on bike lanes. Okay, well, maybe for the next 10 years, but after that, who's going to ride them? Maybe you need to open them up for mobility devices. What about people who need to get in and out of cars who don't have great mobility to be able to get into a a restaurant or get into a business in a downtown while we're taking away their parking spots? I'm not here to advocate for cars or anything like that, but it's just like we have sort of political ideas about what our population is supposed to look like that, that don't represent what the population actually looks like. I mean, the median age of an American today is 38 years old. How many 38-year-olds are riding bikes every day downtown? Maybe there, maybe there's a lot. I could be wrong about this. But the 38-year-olds 10 years from now are going to be 40 years old. And how many of them are going to be wearing bicycle pants? I hope not too many. Um, but um, you know, we, we need to think about these population changes because the world is changing in ways that we're just not paying attention to. So I, I know all over the place, sorry about that, Claire, on, on the economy, but I have very strong feelings about how we I, could take advantage of this different population. I think you mentioned in the book that 70% of the disposable income belongs to boomers. It's true. They own all the best houses, all the real estate, all the investments, they have it all. Young, pe- young people are really, really tough shape. Well, your book had a great example, this Boomchella, as opposed to Coachella, where, yeah. you know, a very high-end concert. Old cella. Old cella. <laughs> Old cella. Where at least somebody got the message and realized, let's tap into these folks um, who have a lot of deep pockets. Right. So, you know, the, the biggest grossing, well, it sounds funny to talk about concerts. We'll get back to it again. The biggest uh, uh, concert, grossing concert in uh, of all time uh, was is Coachella that happens in, uh, in, in just outside of Los Angeles. And the organizers set up another one that they called... Uh, desert trip mm. and the average age of the acts on the on, on the bill were over the age of 70 <laughs> um so it was like the eagles rod stewart the rolling stones paul mccartney and uh and so coachella was the biggest grossing um uh, of concert event and, and is every year until desert trip which was the biggest grossing and most profitable why all they did was instead of saying hey you have to go stand in a field they had numbered seats. They had nice food, good wine, um, lots of restrooms. It was easy to get in and out. And guess what? Older people, it was made for them. They came out. The average age of the person that was there was over the age of 50. It was, it was really successful. Now, I tell this story because I read about it. And then I, had, I was doing a presentation for some group in Las Vegas. And some guy stuck up his hand and he said, I was there. <laughs> and he said, you're absolutely right. And if they did more of those, I'd, I'd go again. So it's like, okay, well, it's, you don't have to change everything. You just have to recognize the population that, that you're really dealing with. And it just maybe even just give it a thought. Make it a little bit easier for older people to consume what it is that you're making or, or to visit your restaurant or whatever. And guess what? They just might. So our next question asked, so did the demographers miss this trend because they were mostly male? Um, to that, I would just say your book makes the case that a lot of people have been known, have known this is, you know, that, that the fertility rate's been dropping for a long time. It seems like the general public didn't know this until very recently. And, and the focus has really been on other countries, Italy, uh, Japan, China now. Um, so who is taking notice of this? Um, you know, is the government, is the private sector? Well, it's funny. When John and I wrote the book, uh, it came out, I think, in March. It'll be three years ago. Uh, but it's, it's, it keeps getting published in new languages and things. So it's, uh, it's picked still, still out there and still picking up momentum. And, and uh, um, when we first put it out, people basically said, you got to be kidding. Mm. So the first the media interviews that I would be doing would be um, somebody from the New York Times or you know, from Wired, or you can look, you can look them up. They're online and go look at the interviews. Um, we're started off with, how is this possible? You must be wrong. Like you're just being sensationalist. This can't possibly be true. Today, two and a half, three years later, completely different. Now it starts off with, yeah, you guys were right about this. And, and by the way, it's not us guys. There was a lot of people who saw this. All John and I did put, was put it in a form that people could, uh, could consume. There was a lot of academic papers. There were, you know, some very sophisticated methodologists who just couldn't tell a story very well. 
all we did was we put it in a narrative that people could could consume. But now, so they come back and they say, you were right. Well, yeah, the people who were saying this were right. We were just reporting it. Uh, but the second thing they say is, okay, what does it mean? So the interviews have moved from prove it to what does this mean in the space of three years? I think you started to touch on this in previously in terms of what, you know, what do we do now? But Kevin's question is, what is your opinion on the economic impact with many companies utilizing technology rather than a human to perform a job? And is the loss of jobs required uh, positions projected to parallel the population decrease? Yeah, this is going to be one of the big issues for um, for uh, um, uh, many companies uh, over the next 15 years. And uh, right now they're calling it the great resignation. But what's under, just under the great resignation is also a lot of people who've chosen to retire during this last two years. Um, so it's, it's, yeah, it's not just, again, you know, we have this youthful view of the world, right? So it's all about millennials, you know, those fickle millennials. They're all quitting their jobs to go do something else. There's, that's part of it. But there's also older people who said, yeah, I don't want to do this anymore. Is some and, of it also, it, I'm sorry, is some of it also disrupted migration? Disruptive migration absolutely is a big part of what's happening with the workforce. So it's it's more complicated than you know the cultural you know memes and tropes that we like to we like to you know uh, acquire and use to interpret these things, which is that you know it's the uh, symbolic worker who's decided that uh, they're going to open their uh, you know uh, uh, their coffee shop rather than work in their ad agency. Well, that's part of it, but there's an awful lot of it is people retiring and also. The, the lack of immigration people being able to get in. Uh, at some point in the next 15, 20 years, immigration is going to move from a, from a seller's market to a buyer's market. Because it's not just numbers, it'll, it'll be the, you know, the most qualified engineers, the most qualified this or that. But even, even you know, if we create robotization and automation and AI, and you know, I hear a lot about this, it's all very interesting. But all of it is just related to production. The bigger problem that we have is consumption. So you can produce incredibly efficiently things that nobody will buy, which all it'll do is just drive down the price and you know, so what? So maybe we have to change our taxation system. Maybe we tax production more than we tax consumption. But but right now, uh, you know, whenever anybody says to me, well, we're going to have robots that are going to do that. Well, that's great, but robots don't buy new cars. So we are just about out of time. I have one last question for you. In your book, you mention classical Greece and Renaissance England as being, you know, places of quite a bit of creativity and innovation despite small populations. But what they seemed to share was a sense of optimism. And I felt that your book really was a cautiously optimistic book. Is that a, a fair uh, reading of your book? Are you cautiously optimistic that with a declining population, the world for our children and our potential grandchildren could be a much better place. Yeah, I am actually optimistic about the future. If you care about the environment, as I, as I said, there's a lot of good news here. There are economic challenges, but I think there are some potential solutions. And I, I mean, you know, the next thing I write is probably going to be about that. You know, how, how can we deal with some of the issues that are going to emerge from that? I don't have to spend my time justifying whatever, but I want to be able to talk to, and we talked about this before we came on the call, um, about a, a person who wrote an op-ed, and I've seen this many times. I've seen the same article many times, where you know a young woman has said, "I've decided I don't want to have a family because it's going to destroy the environment if I have kids, and and uh, you know, and, and all the inequality in the world, and you know, why would I be adding you know some more another person to my rich country or whatever? And we should be doing other things." It's like, okay, look, I totally respect your point of view, but if Everybody in the world thought exactly the way that you did. Humanity would be eliminated in a hundred years. So there has to be a reason for having kids. I mean, because the, the a logic of that position is if everybody is going to live to the same level of virtue that you think that you're expressing, then humanity no longer exists. It's gone in a hundred years. That's it. So surely there needs to be a more positive image about what the future is going to be. And people who want to have kids. Nobody should be told that they have should have kids, but we should make it possible for people who want to have kids to have kids. We should make it possible for, for working mothers 
to be able to raise their families without the pressures that they're under these days as a result of trying to balance work and family life. We should encourage um, you know, um, the, uh, fam things on behalf of families. Uh, there's nothing wrong with that. It's the way that humanity's always worked. I don't want to put any value judgment on it, but the, the, the logic of saying that, you know, I'm not going to have kids simply, I'm going to deny myself the pleasure of having children simply because I think that the future is, um, is, is terrible is such a, uh, uh, um, a millenarian narcissistic kind of way of looking at things. And, and uh, there has to be a better view of the future. And that's what John and I were trying to present in the book. These are the realities, but we can work with them. Why? Because we always have. We've always figured out a way. Dr. Bricker, thank you so much.